Bibles turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We continue our series, Empowered to Rejoice. As we walk through the book of Philippians, we spent last week dealing with the theme of joy. What is joy? How it differs from happiness, and it does, happiness, circumstance, or situation-based. Joy isn't, and joy ultimately comes from God. Um, why Paul can have joy even in a Roman prison. Now we're going to dive into the first 11 verses of the book of Philippians. And we are going to begin by reading those verses. Philippians 1, we'll begin in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let us pray. Lord God, as we focus on your word, the words that Paul has penned, as we think about your work in our lives, we pray that we would see clearly how not only are we currently works in progress, but that you will bring that work to completion. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. People start things all the time. Sometimes they finish those things. You and I, I, I think we're familiar with this. You and I, we, we start things. We have every intention of finishing those things, but maybe we, we just we don't finish them. I think about how I've, I've started reading, I don't even know how many books. Many of them I finish, but I don't always finish a book for one reason or another. I think we, we're familiar with this, right? Maybe, maybe you've got a project at home that you started and... Uh, the completion date is still TBD, right? It's not done yet. Or, or maybe it's a, a project you, you have at work that uh, it's just, it's not, you're not going to get around to completing it. Uh, I mean, any number of things. Maybe, maybe you started writing the great American novel and then you got stuck somewhere, right? I don't know. I think we, we're familiar with this. And, and I think even maybe if we're not familiar with this personally, I think we are, we're certainly familiar with it locally, I'm thinking especially of this photo right here. 
my clicker's not working, guys. Can you advance the slide one for me? There. Nope, nope, that's too far. That's too far. There should be two other pictures. There it is, that one right there. Let's start there. I think we're familiar with this locally because just up the road in Elk Grove, there is this outdoor outlet mall that they started uh, several years ago, and they never finished it. And they just they got halfway through it, and, and that was it. They, they stopped working on it. They abandoned it over 15 years ago. Uh, and then I'm also thinking about uh, this one right here, the high-speed rail system. We know about this, don't we? Uh, when's that thing going to be finished, right? Yeah, we, we know about people starting things and not finishing those things. People start things, but they sometimes don't finish those things. Why is that? Well, people lack perseverance. People lack perseverance. God does not. God is not like us. He does not lack perseverance. God never begins something and then gets busy and forgets about it. God never begins something and then, well, you know, I'll finish it when I can get around to it. God never begins something and does not finish it. He always completes His work. God perseveres. And what we see here in the opening verses of the book of Philippians is Paul emphasizing how God will finish the good work He has begun in His people. God will do that. But what does it mean for God to be at work in our lives? Well, here we see at the beginning of Philippians, this key insight into God's work in us. And in the first two verses, what we notice is God's work is in Christ. Did you notice in just two verses, Paul mentioned Jesus Christ three times. Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. The church in Philippi are saints in Christ Jesus. And they have grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is setting the trajectory for the book of Philippians. The central theme for this epistle is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father sent the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to accomplish the redemption and the salvation of humanity. Why Jesus on the cross does not say, we'll finish it later. He says, it is finished on the cross. And God's work is in Christ Jesus. And it's toward, notice, saints and servants. Servants and saints. Both the work we are to do on behalf of Christ and the work God has accomplished in Christ are in view here. The servant aspect, we are servants Literally, slaves, that's the term there. And in the first century, everyone knew slaves. Uh, the, I forget the exact figure, but over half of the Roman Empire population was a slave in one form or another. And everybody knew slaves do not have rights. They do not have personal privileges. They don't have personal ambitions. For the slave, everything focused on the master and what the master wanted. And what the master willed. The slave abandoned his or her own will 
in order to see to and accomplish the will of the Master. Do you get it? That's us. As slaves of Christ, we abandon our will for the will of our Master. But also we are saints. We've been made holy. We've been set apart unto God in Christ Jesus. And it's only because of Christ Jesus that we are saints of God. So God's work is in Christ Jesus. But as we move forward here into verses 3 through 7, and especially with the emphasis on verse 6, what we see is God's work will be brought to completion. God will accomplish His work. Now, Paul begins this section by talking about his prayer life and the joy that he has in prayer. Paul gives thanks to God every time he remembered his siblings in Philippi. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, he says in verse 3. Every time Paul hit his knees in prayer to make petition to God, he always remembered the Philippian congregation. The church in Philippi was a church that Paul held dear to his heart. He loved these brothers and sisters very much. And notice, he makes every time he makes his prayer to God on their behalf, he makes it with joy, the end of verse 4 says. Love praying for these brothers and sisters. It caused his heart to dance with joy, to pray on their behalf. And the reason is because of your partnership, verse 5, your partnership, literally your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Fellowship, by the way. It's a special Bible word, shows up again and again, and the briefest definition I can give you is, it is the sharing of common objects. In this case, the sharing of the gospel. That's the, the thing that the church in Philippi and Paul, that they, all Christians hold in fellowship, they hold in common, is the gospel. There's other things, of course, but this here highlights the gospel. Their faith, from the first day until now, their faith manifested itself and, and was embodied in their generously helping the Apostle Paul to complete and accomplish his work as an apostle. And so Paul, he loved praying for these folks. May I just ask, what about us? Who do you love praying for? That it brings joy to your heart to remember this brother, this sister, these Christians before God in prayer. Paul, he's emphasizing the joy of prayer in these verses. And it brings him to write in verse 6 about a, a certainty that he has. He says, I am sure of this. He stands convinced of a particular thing. And that thing is that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The one who began this good work in you, he is going to bring it to a thorough completion, Paul is saying. Nothing will be lacking from it. You won't be half built like a high-speed rail system or an outdoor outlet mall. God will accomplish His work. And that, that's, by the way, the answer to the first question, right? Who is He who began a good work? Who does Paul have in mind? It's God. And by the way, whose good work is it then? It's God's. 
it's God's good work that he is, and, and what is that good work, by the way, that God began and is doing and will bring to completion? You dive into the context, and he's just talked in verse 5 about the gospel there in verse 5. In verse 7, he's going to mention grace. They're partakers of grace with him. You incorporate into this, the end of verse 6, the day of Jesus Christ. That is the final day when God will bring judgment upon all people, either for their eternal uh, bliss with God in Christ forever, or to their eternal condemnation. You mix all of this together, and what do you have? It is the work of salvation. It is God's good work of salvation in His people. Even in us. God not may, perhaps, you know, if this or that or whatever. God will bring it to completion. Can you just rest in that for a moment? The, the beauty and the glory that God is going to complete His work in you. I think we sometimes think, man, it's all dependent upon me. I've, I've got to hold this boat together. I'll tell you right now, if, if it's all dependent upon me, I'm just going to speak for myself. If it's all dependent upon me, whether I make it or not, I'm not making it. And I, I, I fall short more often than I like to admit. I'm, I'm, I'm a train wreck, right? I'm broken. I'm a fallen son of Adam, yeah? And that is why it is so sweet to hear in Scripture that salvation is of the Lord. That God's work in Christ Jesus will be brought to completion. And it's all for His glory, by the way. Yes, the, the verse 11 ends with the glory and praise of God. That's what it's all about. Which again emphasizes it's not about me. It's about Him. And so, yeah, God's work of salvation in people, He will bring that to completion at the last day. We shouldn't miss verse 7 about how they're all partakers. You are all partakers with me, of grace. You see, this is what makes salvation even, even possible, is the grace of God. These Christians in Philippi, indeed all Christians across time and space, are partakers, joint participants in the grace of God. And as God gave grace to Paul, as He gave grace to the Christians in Philippi, so God has given grace to us, brothers and sisters, Grace is the present reality for the people of God. Grace makes all the difference. Why, why are you a Christian, but your neighbor, person down the street, person up the block, why, why aren't they Christians? What's the difference? Is it because you're smarter? Somehow better? Yet more advantages? Is it because you're more spiritual? No, 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 and no. The difference is right here, the grace of God. It is God's grace that makes all the difference in the world. And look, while God's work will be brought to completion, He will finish it, we shouldn't miss that it is in progress. And that's what verses 8 through 11 are about, is the ongoing progress of God's work in our lives. We can't miss how this is being worked out in time and space to the glory and praise of God. He begins by talking about the love that he has for these Christians. Very deep. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
And the word here that he uses for affection, a uh, very beautifully sounding word, splachnois, right? But that's, that's their word for, for the seat of the emotions, which is the belly. That's what they thought, where they thought the seat of emotions was. Of course, we moved it just a little further north to the heart, yes? But that's, that's what he's talking about is, is from way down deep within me. I, I have this affection. I yearn for you all. And that's why he prays in verse 9. And it's the, the word that he uses there for prayer is the common word uh, used elsewhere in Scripture for prayer. Just speaking to God. And so I, I pray that your love may abound more and more. And by the way, this is a prayer that Paul makes again and again. It's a, it's a habitual prayer. It's a, an ongoing present tense thing where he is praying that they, their love may abound more and more. And I know when it comes to love, we, we think about the, the subjective aspect of it, the, 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 the feelings, the warm fuzzies, right? That's part of it. I, I think we need that. But we can't overlook the objective nature of love. How, for God, He so loved the world, He sent His Son into the world. Why is that? Why does God do that? What's He at work accomplishing? Well, He wants to see people formed after the image of Christ. And so, when it comes to the objective nature of God's love, it is His overarching singular desire to see people formed after the image of Christ. And I think it's just one simple move to say, that's what love ought to be for us as well. The overarching and singular desire that we ought to have for other people to see Christ formed in them. And so Paul says, I want you, you've already got it. You already love people. Do it more and more. And I pray that you, you would abound in that. The idea here is it, it overflows. It overflows out of the church even into the community, into Philippi proper. That the love of God may be overflowing. There'd be this, this perpetual flood of love, as it were. That your love may abound more and more. But notice, it's not just all the all the income free, love is love and all that jazz that you hear out there in the world, the secondhand smoke of the world that sometimes even Christians breathe in. Notice that this is love with knowledge and all discernment. You don't just get to unplug your brain and go, well, you're just going to love everything and everything, right? No, it's with knowledge and discernment. And in fact, the word that Paul uses here for knowledge, it's actually the idea of a full knowledge. And indeed, Christians do have full knowledge. Knowledge and discernment. Discernment can be described as spiritual perception. We as Christians who have the knowledge of God, we ought to use that knowledge to properly express love toward others. And the love that we are to have, it, it ultimately comes from Christ who, in whom are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so, if Christ has all the knowledge, then it is that knowledge which ought to inform our love for other people. But also discernment. Uh, I believe the NIV says depth of insight. That's pretty good. 
But discernment does have to do with right judgment. And it has to do with moral discrimination. This is why, again, the secondhand smoke of the world, that love is love, simply will not do. Love must be coupled with moral discernment. Moral discrimination. Why is that? In order to guard love. Lest love become an idol. Lest love become something it's not supposed to be. And so, discernment must accompany love. Knowledge must accompany love. Both of these things are essential. One writer put it this way. The love of believers must accordingly be able to know rightly and to sense clearly and to distinguish correctly. Why? Well, verse 10. So that, here's the purpose statement, so that you may approve what is excellent. And the idea here of of approving something is you need to test it. You need to examine that thing to determine whether it's good and worthwhile or not. Or even outright evil and a distortion of that which uh, God has given us. And so Paul prays that they have that deep knowledge, that advanced knowledge of God, and that they utilize that spiritual perception involved with love in order to enable them to approve what is excellent, to distinguish between not just good and evil, but even what is good, better, and best. What do I mean by good, better, and best? If you keep your finger there in Philippians 1 and just turn back a couple pages to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to give you, there's a couple of instances here. I'll just give you one in verse 28 of this good, better, best business. Ephesians 4 verse 28, Paul writes, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And I believe in this verse you have the good, better, and best thing here. Notice, let the thief no longer steal. That's good. If you're a thief and you become a Christian, it is good that you abandon your thievery. That's good. You know what would be better? Rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. That's better. Go, go get you a good, honest job and do an honest day's work. You know what's best? That he may have something to share with anyone in need. You no longer steal. You go out, get yourself an honest job. You get an honest day's wages. And then you learn as a Christian to share that with people as they have need. What do we have on the wall here about providing for urgent needs? Yeah. Here's your good, better, and best. This is what we ought to approve when it comes to that which is excellent. This is what Paul is talking about here. And so, verse the rest of verse 10, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And again, it's a present tense thing. You continue to be pure and blameless. And you came to be pure and blameless not because of anything you did. It's because of Christ. It's because of the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That's this pure and blameless. In fact, the idea here is being unmixed, unsullied. It's the idea of taking an object and, and holding it up to the light to, to see whether or not it's, it's of good quality. 
right? And so, in a similar way, our lives are held up to the light of the sun, the S-O-N, to see whether or not we're mixed with anything, we have any impurities within us. And it is the brilliant light of the holiness of the Son of God that will expose our darkness. And so be pure and blameless right here and right now, but also for the day of Christ, that great day when we will stand for final judgment before the judgment seat of Christ. I like the way Adam Clark in his commentary describes this idea of being blameless. He, sees ne- he says, ne- neither offending God nor your neighbor, neither being stumbled yourselves nor causing the stumbling to others. This is the idea of being pure and blameless. And finally, to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You see, what this, the end of verse 10 and into verse 11, what it's talking about here is the character of de- development of your character. There it is. It's talking about character development. As you come to look more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. What's involved with it is being filled. And in fact, the tense here is significant because it's what's called a perfect tense verb. That is, past completed action with present continuing results. Past completed action, present continuing results. That is, you came to be filled and you stand full, or God began the good work of filling you up and He continues to fill you up. Or, how about this? God filled you, and He continues to fill you so much so that you're overflowing with it. That's the idea here of being filled. And by the way, it is a passive voice verb, which indicates this isn't something you do. You don't go chasing after this trying to fill yourself up. God is the filler. Fill us, O filler, with your fullness. That's the prayer of the Christian. To be filled with the fruit of righteousness the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And this is a theme that Paul will continue to develop develop as we continue deeper and deeper into the book of Philippians, is he will emphasize the righteousness of Christ. That you you don't go out and attain your own righteousness. To be found with a righteousness of your own is folly and is foolhardy. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul will talk about I don't want to be found with my own righteousness. And that, by the way, stated by a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, it doesn't get much more rigorous when it comes to righteousness than that. And yet even Paul says, it's not mine. I don't want it to be mine. I want the righteousness that comes from Christ. And so to be full of the fruit of the righteousness. In other words, it ought to be recognizable. There ought to be a tangible difference between your life after coming to Christ and your life before you came to Christ. It's not that you just, you know, you got dunked and baptized and, hey, all the the income free, I'm going to do whatever I want now because, hey, I, I, I punched my ticket, took out a little fire insurance, as it were. God forbid that we think of grace as that cheap. No, it's the, the fruit of the righteousness that comes from Christ. Your life will look different because you've been justified by the blood of Christ. Your life will look different 
as you seek to be conformed to the image of Christ day by day, even moment by moment as you seek to live for Him. This is what is called sanctification. As you have been set apart, and you continue to be set apart more and more for the holy purposes of God. When it comes to righteousness, there, there's actually three dimensions uh, that, that uh, are in play here. Uh, one is how you interact with other people. There's a certain righteous standard that you are to maintain when it comes to your neighbor. But also, there's the aspect of your own moral character, how you live as you practice righteousness, as John talks about in 1 John chapter 3. But also, and perhaps primarily in view, is your right standing before God Almighty, who is the judge. Right standing before God. That righteousness is what Christ has brought us. It's what we are clothed with as Christians. Why is God at work in us? And the progress that's being made as even day by day we look more and more like Jesus. What's it all about? It's all about those, that last phrase there, to the glory and praise of God. Even why is it Paul is praying this for these Philippian Christians? It's to the praise, the glory and praise of God. Everything is aimed at this sole purpose of God. That He would be glorified and praised in all things. It's the same desire that Christ had. That, that God would be glorified in the Son and the, the Son would glorify the Father. And so all those who are in the Son, in Christ Jesus, seek to glorify the Father, and bring glory to God. You see, God is honored. He's glorified. He's praised when Christians, by His grace, seek to live their lives for Christ. That's what this all boils down to. And may I just ask, this is a prayer from Paul. I think the things that we pray are, are good, and perhaps uh, to some level, better than other things. Are they the best things that we should be praying for? In light of what Paul is praying for here, how does your prayer life stack up? Is it just for the, the physical comforts and the physical blessings that God can give you? I'm not discounting those. We ought to pray for those things. The depth here, these are, these are spiritual things that, that, uh, that mount up to the glory and praise of God. These are the deep things that we ought to be praying for as well. Especially when we are cognizant and aware of the fact that God's work is continuing to be in progress in us. You saw the picture earlier. This is Sagrada Familia Basilica over in Barcelona, Spain. It is, it's an impressive structure. Um, the four spires that you see there, they, uh, they, they actually represent the, the four gospel writers. They are currently over 360 feet tall. 
although they're planned for, uh, to be 442 feet tall when they're completed. There's a central spire that you can kind of make out there in, the, in between all four of them, right in the middle of them. That is called the Tower of Christ. And it actually just surpassed the other four spires. This is an older picture, but it has, it's closing in on 370 feet tall of a planned 566 feet when it's all completed. You see, that's the thing, and this has been a, a cropped photograph. Someone edited out the uh, cranes that are currently working on it, and you can kind of see them there in that picture. Those cranes have been a uh, persistent presence while this basilica has been under construction. There's actually a planned 18 spires that will be built when it's all done. Only eight of them at this time are completed. You see, after 136 years, Sagrada Familia Basilica is not completed. 136 years they've been building on this thing. They drew up plans for it back in 1876. They broke ground back in 1882. And construction began in 1887 under the direction of the architect, Antonio Gaudi. And of course, Gaudi, he's not lived to see his vision come to fruition, but people continue uh, to pursue the vision that Gaudi had. 136 years. The project at present is around 70% complete. (laughs) The target date, this is what gets me, the target date for completion is 2026. Got five years, only 70% done. I guess time will tell if they finish on time. I like this particular example because this unfinished work, this basilica, I do believe it is analogous to the work that God is doing within us. You see, it's not done, and it may take time, but I do believe they'll eventually finish this basilica, unless, of course, Jesus comes back, right? But I do believe they'll, they'll complete it at some point, maybe in our lifetime, maybe not. But I do think it will be accomplished, and in a similar way, God will complete His work. It, may, it will take your entire lifetime, yes? It'll take your, uh, uh, either, either when you die or Jesus comes back, the work's going to be done. But God will complete His work in us. He will finish His work. One day, God's work on us in Christ Jesus will be complete. And so we pray, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. We pray to hasten that day when God's good work in us will be complete. Let's pray about this. Lord God, indeed, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We pray that you would fill us, O filler, with your fullness. We pray that you would hasten the day when your good work is completed in us. And we believe that you will accomplish and bring to completion your good work within us. May we be people who are diligent in growing in love with knowledge and discernment. And may we be people who seek to continue 
to develop our character in the glorious light of Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.